Hi, my name is Matt Fernley, editor of Battery Materials Review, and here's all the key news in the world of battery materials this month. Welcome to February's edition of Recharge, the podcast by Battery Materials Review. Later, I'll be interviewing Chris Gower, Chief Executive of Ultilium Group on the nickel market and his company's revolutionary hydromet laterite processing technology. But for now, I'm delighted to welcome my co-presenter, Cormac O'Lara, MD of Electrials Energy, to run through some of the key talking points from January. So welcome, Cormac, and uh, happy Chinese New Year this time. Are you going to have withdrawal symptoms next month when you've got nothing to celebrate? Looking forward to it. Yeah, I've been busy. Well, we had a week off, so that wasn't too bad. But the uh, year of the tiger, yeah. So this is a, it's going to be fortune year. It's supposed to be uh, by the Chinese soothsayers here based in Hong Kong. That it's going to be the year where we're all going to make money. So uh, looking forward to it. Fingers crossed. Let's hope. Uh, of course, obviously, if everybody makes money, it's going to be a, a difficult year for the world, perhaps. Us uh, in Hong Kong. I meant us in Hong Kong. <laughs> <Just laughs> You've got to move over here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay. Well, it being Chinese New Year, let's uh, start off the recap with China. More gigafactories this month, even more, more gigafactories. Not too many of the usual names, though, involved. Uh, CATL must be tired of announcing gigafactory openings. But this Chinese battery company, CALB, yeah, it's so, known by so a few not names. one that, that, that a lot of people will have heard of, but certainly one that's been adding a lot of market share in the in the industry over the last sort of six to nine months or so. Can you tell us a little bit about that one? They're a top five producer in China. They are a long established company, not a a new company. I think they split off from, they have a relationship with another company called AVIC, might be the same company, but they are really moving forward with the CALB brand. And they said they're a top five producer in China, just, just outside. BYD and, and CATL, well, a long way behind those two, obviously, most other Chinese battery manufacturers are, but they're, uh, they make quite good uh, batteries, actually, uh, very high quality. They know what they're doing. And now what they're, what they're going through is scaling up. They have some nice agreements with Chinese automakers, and I won't be surprised to see some international automakers also uh, source their cells. They announced a plant in Europe, didn't they? A German plant that they've got under development. Yeah. That's right. But I don't think of a location in Germany, right? Um, no, no. As far as I'm aware, no, not at all. Yeah, it's, hand, it's handy just to say Germany. But um, I wouldn't be surprised. Every Chinese battery manufacturer who's interested in setting up in, in Europe is is not finding it too easy. You know, CATL, how far along are they? Uh, I, I believe they have the plant commission, maybe uh, pre-operational, but um, I don't think it's very big. Pharisis also. Um, you have um, Microvast, a couple of others. I think the uh, pace of uh, setting up a factory in Europe is, is not what they're used to. I, I think we see that across the board, actually, in Europe. It's it's much more difficult than people expect. I mean, just look at the issues that Tesla's had with, with its gigafactory in Berlin. It yeah. takes a lot longer than people think to to set up even industrial plants in Europe. Also delays in that in, in, in there as well, right? Environmental studies about bat nests and birds' nests and uh, tree removal, water, yeah. you know. It has to be done, of course. It has to be done. Uh, but uh, you know, there's great pushback to to many uh, battery supply chain operations in Europe. As I mentioned in an earlier podcast, in Poland, the electrolyte manufacturers are, are, are not having an easy time uh, trying to set up in Poland, as we saw in Serbia recently also. 
So coming back to CALB, um, yeah. are they a mixture of chemistries or what's their sort of focus? Primarily uh, LFP, I believe, for their automotive, but they also do Turner or NMC. But primarily LFP, I believe. They also pretty big in the energy storage field also. I think this big push into electric vehicles is only been in the last 18 months or so. And they were okay. kind of in the background for a while, but... Um, Okay. But, you know, they have uh, huge announcements announced and uh, that's keeping up with their peers like Asphalt who have announced 700 uh, or 600 uh, gigawatt hours of production by 28 or something like that. Wow. Which is I mean, every time I see these battery factory announcements and um, I understand we're up to 256 now in the last couple of days, I always sort of sit there and wonder how they're going to actually source enough raw material for these factories. I mean, on our supply demand model at the moment, we can only get... 50% capacity utilization in terms of the uh, raw material lithium that's going to be available. So you do wonder if anybody's actually looking at that in the battery industry. Chinese are yeah, certainly looking at it. Like uh, BYD, for example, uh, were awarded two licenses for lithium mining in uh, Chile, right, recently? We don't know whether they were right. or not. So they were awarded licenses and then the, um, the whole process was wound back. So we don't know whether that um, went through or not. All right. In China itself, Goshen uh, is uh, involved in a couple of projects in the Chinki area, which is uh, in near Tibet, Brian's. And, uh, and these are, are these DLE projects? or These are Brian Salt Lake, uh, similar to uh, what's in Atacama. There's but, two regions but, in but China. Lower grade and with not such good evaporation uh, characteristics. Yes, very high altitude. High altitude. It's not the same kind of environment. Well, Atacama is quite high as well, but it's not the same kind of arid uh, environment. Yes, sm much smaller, uh, also a smaller uh, geological feature also. These, these yeah. salt lakes are not as big. They also have the hard rock in... Um, elsewhere in China. It's uh, Elsewhere, yeah. middle elsewhere of China. Elsewhere in right. China. Let's go with that one. Okay. And just to finish up on China, a lot of column inches this month about the... Um, uh, Yangtze, sorry, Yangtze is uh, the other area. Oh, brilliant, sorry. okay. Yeah, yeah. So, that's the uh, lithium carbonate. Uh, you see that coming out of there, all the hard rock. And uh, for the Tibet, Qinghai areas, mostly uh, hydroxide or what, what they were looking at. Okay, okay. A lot of column inches this month about the potential fall in EV sales because of the drop in EV subsidies in China. What are you sort of hearing? I mean, that there are two schools of thought on this. Um, because the EV subsidies are lower this year than last year, EV sales are going to fall. But then the other school of thought is because there will be no EV subsidies next year, EV sales are going to rise. Which camp do you sort of sit in? I sit in the camp that everyone's going to try and get a discount they can get. It's not across the whole industry. Commercial vehicles can still get uh, subsidies. You know, there's different subsidies for different applications. But for the passenger electric vehicles, I see there's going to be a race on. There's going to be deals by the uh, manufacturers to shift inventory all based on, first of all, EV prices have risen in, in China, mostly across the board in response, uh, future prices in response. So the prices have been laid out what, what will be like after 2022. So people will know what they're going to be paying in 2023. So I think it will encourage consumers to um, take advantage of the subsidies while they're still there. The subsidies policy changes every year. So it might be, it's already been, not this year, but uh, last year it was already uh, changed in response, after 2019 in response to the market, you know, to encourage more buyers. And uh, if there's a huge drop off next year, maybe it'll be adjusted again, maybe another, it's been extended a few times. 
Yeah, yeah. It was extended after the pandemic, wasn't it? To um, to to keep people focusing on the space. I remember that. Yeah. Okay. And sort of elsewhere in EV land, some interesting news out of Tesla uh, last month in terms of the fact that they've actually sort of put the kibosh on on new models, so delayed their new model launches, Cybertruck, etc. Any views? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you must be disappointed. No micro EV going to be coming out from Tesla. <laughs> well, I mean, it is an issue. I mean, I remember last year they said that they weren't going to launch the Tesla Semi because of the shortage of batteries. And I wonder if that's what we're dealing with here, that there continues to be a shortage, well, sorry, a shortage of cells. That's the yeah. issue. And obviously the, the the Tesla Semi would be a big, big battery. So that's going to use a lot of cells. And from their point of view, probably more cost-effective and, and profit-effective to focus on the Model 3 and the Model Y rather than a, a large unit which could use two or three times the number of cells. Is that well, your take as well? My Well, the originally the um, Cybertruck, it was supposed to use the 4680 cells, which Panasonic just announced that their cells won't be ready till next year, 2023. So it's probably in line with that if we're talking about the Cybertruck that you know this the and, and Tesla have had huge trouble also manufacturing the cells in, in their pilot plant. So uh I'd say that's the main reason why we're not going to see the Cybertruck this year because that was promised to have the 4680 cells in it. Right. Okay. So it's an issue with rolling out the new architecture rather than a shortage of cells. Well it, it kind of is a shortage of cells, but it's to do with issues with producing a new architecture. Yeah, I believe so. As I said, the, the truck was supposed to have the latest 4680, and that's what was promised by Tesla and Battery Day. And um, I guess they're just going to hold that till they have the cells. Maybe that's a, a crucial part of the whole design. That it's you know, well, if it's going to be a cell to uh, chassis, uh, for example, that it needs the 4680 because you can't do it with the 217. Mm-hmm. I think that's interesting, and and uh, particularly that you know Tesla's had this issue given that they are very much at the forefront of technological development in the electric vehicle space, highlighting again how difficult it is to bring new plants into production and to change your way of working in the space. And I think you know some investors would do well to pay attention to that as, as an issue because we see it all the way through the space, not just from the EV space and the cell space, but importantly in the raw material space as well. Yeah, they don't seem to have uh, having as, as much trouble with Tesla Shanghai. I notice um, they just they're going to extend or expand that facility. They hiring another two thousand people for Tesla Shanghai. So, um, but, but that's that's uh, doing basically what what they've been doing, isn't it? It's you know it's LFP, it's yeah. uh, NCM eight one one twenty one seventy batteries. The batteries are, are, are sourced right there. CATL built a new factory in, in Shanghai uh, just to, to spy LFP cells to uh, Tesla. Yeah. I believe that factories are almost operational, which is, yeah. you know, that's what Well, I mean, it certainly seems it's easier to get battery factories started up um, in, in China than it is elsewhere. Uh, yeah, I think it's, you know, battery factories seem to, uh, seem to be a, seem to be a bit of a scary word for the uh, public. It's like saying you're opening a petroleum refinery uh, in some nice neighborhood. You know, it seems to be lots of pushback. 
too large. You know, the, the, the bad name comes from the, the huge footprints these things uh, really take up and, and the resources from the local uh, environment, you know, the power resources, water resources that, um, you know, slightly got a bad name if you got the term uh, word gigafactory moving into town. Good for employment, but uh, the footprint is just massive okay. and maybe too big. Maybe we don't need gigafactories. Maybe we should be going... Build smaller. Who knows? Well, but, uh, I, I, I think we do at the moment, because <laughs> yeah. otherwise there's no way we're going to get those EVs built. But uh, let's see how that goes. Talking about factory investment, battery factory investment, I think it would be remiss if we didn't mention the um, LG Energy Solutions IPO. $10 billion, not, not too bad, and um, just a measly 2,000 times oversubscribed from what I can gather. Pretty impressive, eh? Yeah, it just shows you that it's almost bulletproof to go IPO with a uh, battery company or battery supplier because, um, you know, Tesla have had, uh, sorry, uh, LG's had a number of issues over the last 18 months with their battery quality. And, you know, if you're going to partner with them, are you going to be paying for the number of recalls? You know, there's lots of doubts, but didn't dampen anybody's uh, wish to invest in them. So um, I, I, that, I mean, uh, for me, yeah. the major takeaway was, $10 billion raised for cell manufacturing. And how much did we raise in the month for the raw material space? Well, a billion dollars is great, but it's still a tenth of what we managed to raise for, for cell manufacturing. And, you know, that's pretty much in line with the last 12 to 18 months. At some point, there's got to be a, a situation where the raw materials end starts catching up with the downstream end. Otherwise, we're continuing to build in this structural structural shortage. Yeah, I agree with you there. The, the, I just wanted to try and think of any other industry where we had to do this kind of catch up. Has the raw materials industry ever been more invested in than the uh, more downstream? Probably, we- maybe in the 50s or something. But I mean, the last time the raw material industry was underinvested, obviously, was during the, the, the China fixed asset investment event where base metal prices went up four, five, six times or whatever during the event. So, um, yeah. You know, that's definitely the risk this time around with battery-specific raw materials. And uh, obviously, we've already seen the, the impact of that in lithium. You know, it's it's back to the drawing board for some of us, uh, those idiots among us who in December said lithium prices would go to, to $60 a kilogram. <laughs> now we're above $60 a kilogram. Some people are having to uh, rethink their battery raw material yeah. price forecasts. <laughs> It's uh, difficult to see where where it's going to max out. Uh, we're going to have to see uh, a lot more uh, extra supply to come on in the near term. Uh, it's just it's yeah. a runaway train. China again, as you just said. Uh, you know, every every week actually, it's a uh, a new lithium carbonate rec- record. I think it's mm. a. Well, I mean, it's just thousand. it's just speaking to the scarcity of supply at the moment, and you know, I, I think one of the things that really emphasizes that was the ASX lithium producers reporting season when we heard again of the difficulty of getting new new projects, even brownfield projects into production. I see a, a delay at, at green bushes and an inability to hit targeted recovery levels, which obviously means they're a little bit behind schedule on their on their ramp up. Pilbara minerals again struggle to with its expansions and yeah. that seems to be a mixture between technical issues and also problems of sourcing labor due to the the covid travel regulations in western australia 
hopefully those regulations are going to go away in the course of this month. But yeah. it's obviously going to have knock-on impacts on development projects in Western Australia, which are likely to be probably pretty much behind schedule. So you do wonder realistically how much new supply is going to come on out of Western Australia this year. Well, uh, it's banking that uh, most of the new supply will come out of uh, Western Australia, right? Uh, for any additional capacity would be coming out of Australia for 2022 in the, in the near term. Uh, well, I mean, I can't see any anything coming on in the in the next yeah. three or four months or so. I mean, I think any any new supply is likely to be back end weighted. We obviously have got some expansions in Latin America. We've got some greenfield projects in Latin America due to come in over the next sort of six to twelve months or so. Right. But given how difficult it has been to start up greenfield projects and and get them to hit capacity and hit spec. Yeah. I'm not expecting, you know, great things for from there. I agree. Yeah, yeah. There was, uh, it was, it was looking quite when the all the expansions were announced last year, middle of last year. It was looking like, you know, we could almost get double capacity by the end of 2022. But yeah, that's um, that, that's looking Australia. rather unlikely now. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, you know, you do sort of sit there and wonder where where the next ton of nickel is going to come from, which is. Um, which is, a, sorry, next ton of lithium is going to come from, which is a um, interesting question, I mean, particularly for some of these Chinese converters. So um, let's just run into to nickel because obviously big squeeze in nickel prices during January. In fact, they sort of bucked the trend of the rest of the LME base metal prices. You know, I think it's it's worth looking at this market because obviously battery demand for nickel out of China has been much stronger than perhaps many were anticipating. We've seen a big reduction in metal exchange inventories on the LME and also on Shanghai. Huge increase in uh, Chinese nickel sulfate nickel sulfate imports during 2021. Huge, huge move. Um, and also refined nickel imports picking up into China in the second half of the year. So everything says that we're looking at at quite a substantial inventory clear out. And if you look at the price to inventory relationship over time, prices are probably 50% below where they should be for for this sort of level of inventories. We have a very interesting conversation with Chris Gower from Altilium Group, who who gives a lot of um, really interesting market information about the Indonesian HPAL projects coming up after this conversation. Right. So, um, yeah, That'd I would, would uh, suggest people uh, who are interested in nickel have a, have a listen to that. So you wonder where all this nickel is going in China since uh, all the batteries are LFP, most likely. Well, they're not all LFP, are they? I mean, they're, they're I think it's the cathode manufacturers. It's 60 you know, isn't it? Yeah, it's the cathode manufacturers who like uh, Huawei, Huawei, Cobalt, and uh, Shanshan, and um, uh, BTR, and all the rest. And they, uh, you know, they're 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 uh, processing it and, and, and sending it to the uh, Korean battery manufacturers. So yeah, yeah, they still source. That's why so much nickel is going into the country uh, for battery applications. Uh, yeah. But I think most of it's exported. Again, as um, either cathode precursor or cathode material. Okay, okay. Let's finish up uh, by talking a little bit about solid state. Difficult to turn around in battery land at the moment without seeing an article on solid state. 
we both have yeah. our own views. I'll let you talk about yours first. Well, it was uh, Solid Energy Solutions, SES. I don't know, they changed the name. It used to be Solid Energy, but um, yeah. uh, they IPO are SPAC'd during the week. I believe it's a SPAC, right? Quite successful SPAC. Uh, so, so that was QuantumScape followed by um, SES. The strange thing about Solid State, most of them are US companies, are startups, right? It's uh, mm. Solid Power, Solid Energy, QuantumScape, and then you have uh, Qberg, there's a couple others, but uh, they're all based in the US. The ones in China aren't household names. There's a couple. Uh, well, there's, there's a few in Japan also, not household mm-hmm. names. I just want to uh, know where uh, Tesla stands in all this because every automaker, every major OEM has signed some sort of are invested in these solid state electrolyte companies, and um, except Tesla, except Tesla. <laughs> and, and interestingly, this month CATL also came out with some pretty disparaging remarks about solid state. I mean, they basically said that. They didn't expect solid state to be anything more than 1% market share by 2030. And I suppose, you know, if you look at the gigafactories that have been announced, I mean, so far, how many of them are solid state? And I think it's a big fat zero. So I think there's, solid state... There's two in China. Out. There's two one gigabit, a gigawatt hour factories Woo. in China. Woo. Okay. Well, so, I don't so, know if they're actually uh, up and going, you know, I mean, you you do look at you do, and those are pure solid state or they're semi solid states. Supposed to be pure. Most of the uh, like stuff coming online, like the SES, a very nice product a project. Mm-hmm. It's not uh, they're not solid state really. They're um, liquid, uh, highly yeah. concentrated electrolyte. But um, yeah. yeah, they're very nice uh, project. Uh, the product looks quite good. But I, I'm with the CATL. I don't think that a solid state is going to be 100 percent of the market or even 50 percent of the market. Because it's a you know it's a very high tech solution for a problem that with the current solutions that we have uh, you know the main benefit uh, one of the main benefits that's always thrown around about solid state is that it cannot catch fire mm. you know this is energy density and you can't burn it but it's going to be an issue of economics isn't it because it's so expensive to produce you know you may see solid state in your absolutely top of the line EVs but. The only way that solid state can be competitive, I think, with lithium-ion batteries is if they get the economics to a comparable level. Because at the moment, why would you invest, I don't know what the prices are, but I, I think substantially you know, multiples of current lithium-ion prices, even with <laughs> current uh, battery raw material levels, yeah. why would you invest multiples on a per kilowatt hour basis when you've got a perfectly reasonable solution in lithium-ion? For mass market yeah. vehicles, you, you just don't need to. So it's very much it's an academic development project at the moment. One of the big issues that no one talks about solid state is that solid state electrolytes use a lot more lithium than current electrolytes. If you just <laughs> talk about electrolyte alone, solid state means you're making a solid structure. So there's a lot more lithium in this structure, in the matrix of this structure, than is in a liquid electrolyte. It's only like one molar in liquid electrolyte, uh, right. where the amount of lithium it's going to require to make a solid state electrolyte on a vast scale would, you know, we can barely fill the lithium requirements as it is with yeah. a technology that doesn't require that much lithium, but you're going to need a lot more to uh, convert the whole industry to solid state. And that's going to be a big issue. Now, if you ask anybody involved in the, um, the solid state uh, industry about where you're going to source all this lithium, for your solid state electrolyte. And if you forget about it, if you're even going to use uh, lithium metal, 
the response is, oh, uh, we spoke to the lithium in mining industry and they said they'll have the amount of lithium available by the time we got Giga. I don't see it happening. But, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's definitely an issue. I think the other issue is that at this point in time, I don't believe there's actually the industrial manufacturing capacity in existence to actually make solid state batteries on a, on a large scale. So I'm with CATO on this, I, I think maybe up to 1% by 2030. And then the second generation comes on probably mid-2030s, hopefully by which time we have sorted out our raw material supply issues. And then maybe it has a better chance of, of being successful. But I think, you know, this decade, I just don't see it. The only reason, uh, one of the primary reasons that solid-state energy was researched was not for applying to current battery technology using NMC, for example. It was used, it was used, it was investigated to use for lithium sulfur or lithium air batteries, which are lithium sulfur is a lot closer, but lithium air is nowhere near it. Uh, it was because you couldn't use liquid electrolytes in those for in the, them as a solution. So solid state was looked upon. So so if you do the big problems, if if these companies solve the solid state. Have you solved the oxygen uh, cathode problem or the sulfur cathode problem? And is it a bit overkill to apply solid state to NMC? Because as I was saying earlier, the fire issue, that safety issue is the biggest concern. The safety issues with EVs is, you know, very, very low as it is. Mm -hmm. So I just think it's a bit of where are they going to apply it? Have they got an oxygen electrode or sulfur electrode? Because I don't see any need for it in NMC. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I agree with that as well. Okay, on that note, I think we'll wrap it up for this month. So I say thanks very much to Cormac and uh, look forward to speaking to you next month. Thanks, Matt. Talk to you uh, March, yeah? St. Paddy's. <laughs> Something <laughs> else to celebrate. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I, I got a couple of weeks off. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Thank you. Moving on to our interview now. So it's been an interesting couple of months in the nickel market and focuses once again on security of supply particularly as it pertains to the viability of laterite projects to producing battery-grade material. I'm delighted to be joined by Chris Gower, Chief Executive of Altilium, whose company is developing a new technology to produce battery-grade nickel from laterite ores. Chris, thanks for joining us today. Thanks very much, Matt. It's my pleasure. and Thank you for inviting me on. You're welcome. So before we start talking about your DNI process, perhaps we could talk just a little bit more about the industry. The first Indonesian H-Power projects are due on this year. You're based in Indonesia now. Do you have an update on the current situation with regards to the H-Power project development? Yes, yeah, sure. I, I mean, I can tell you what I've heard. I haven't visited any of the plants uh, myself yet. The plant in, um, on Obi Island, which is the Harita um, plant, that started commissioning last year and is in a ramp-up um, phase now. When they originally designed this plant, they were going to uh, do deep-sea disposal, tailings disposal, uh-huh. and the Indonesian government, um, as, as you know, put a ban on that. And so they had to change plans and decided they were going to dry stack. And my understanding is that, is that they still haven't got the equipment designed, um, or, you know, let alone in place, to do that. So I think there's temporary tailings dams at the moment, and they are looking to you know, redesign, re-engineer um, the, the, the back end of the plant so that they can do the dry stacking. The other two, well, there's two other plants in Morawali in development, which were expected to come online during the course of this year. My intelligence um, is that, uh, that that may slip into, into next year, but they face exactly the same problem. They, uh, they need to dry stack. 
but the Moral Hulley Industrial Park is uh, is pretty near full. Right. So, so there's nowhere to do that, and they'll have to uh, the the park will have to be expanded, and they'll have to uh, negotiate with um, you know with various bodies to um, to find the space to to uh, to, to dry stack the the, uh, the the tailings. So it's you know it's the problem with H Park is is what do you do with the tailings? Yeah, yeah, definitely, and uh, yeah, that that's uh, that's very interesting. Thanks very much for that intelligence. So moving on a little bit, maybe a little bit further downstream, there's a lot of focus at the moment in the industry on the Singshan NPI to mat to nickel sulfate process. Do you have any thoughts about the process? And, and do you think it's going to be viable to get to battery grade material using that process? And bearing in mind, I'm not a chemical engineer, so it's, it's, a, it's layman's viewpoint. The process could be viable. It can produce uh, battery grade metals. But it's a very energy intensive and, and you know, CO2 producing, waste producing process. I know that uh, Tsingshan started the, well, they announced first production in December, uh, just gone. I mean, the material, if it you know, is, is economically viable, the material will only, in my opinion, sell to China because of the, the, uh, the, the, its, its, you know, its environmental credentials. I can't see uh, European manufacturers, particularly in light of the European directive on you know, the CO2 audit from mine to vehicle, all North American car manufacturers, battery manufacturers being interested in that product. Mm-hmm. It may work, but like most of the plants in Indonesia, it will if it, if it does work, it will solely be supplying China. And what do you think about the Indonesian government's view on that plant? Because obviously it's been trying to go downstream, but it's also been trying to get away from very highly CO2 intensive processing routes. And my understanding of, of that route is it's kind of like a double pyrometallurgical process. You pyromet it once and then you have to pyromet it again. Yes, yeah. That, that's, that's my understanding. It's, um, I, I think economically it makes sense because you're sort of reusing sunk capital. Uh, you're doing a retrofit on a, an existing NPI plant. So on capital, you know, as far as capital is concerned, it could make sense. But I think the Indonesian government is... Um, I can't speak for them, but my but based upon the the way that they're they're discouraging now the the further development of pyrometallurgical plants, they are looking to drive the processing industry in Indonesia towards hydromet, and um, yeah, which is which is obviously good for my company. Yeah, but um, but yeah, I, I I think Indonesia also is quite keen to not solely be the a, a supplier to, to to China. You know, they 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 want to. Um, you know, look further afield and um, supply materials. Preferably, as you as you know, Indonesia wants to go down, so up the value chain. They want to not just process to MHP, but they'd also like to produce you know, batteries and ultimately cars here. They would like to see established battery manufacturing, which would then go to you know, Europe, North America. Okay, so getting on to your DNI process now, which, as you said, is a hydromet or a solution-based process as opposed to Singshan's uh, very pyromet-heavy process. Can you just talk us through the main aspects of, of the DNI process? Yeah, of course. What differentiates our processes? Firstly, we use nitric acid, and nitric acid is recognized as being you know, the best acid for dissolving metals in ore. It just hasn't been used commercially in the past uh, because it's expensive, more expensive than sulfuric um, hydrochloric. And the reason we can use it is because we recycle it. So 99% of the acid is recycled within our flow sheet. 
we extract all of the metals from the ore. Uh, so we have a zero, ours is a zero waste process. Even our residue, which is silicates with trace amounts of magnesium nitrate, can be used, returned to the mine and used for mine rehabilitation because it's essentially a fertilizer. And we extract you know, the, all of the metals, the iron, scandium, aluminium, uh, nickel, cobalt, and magnesia all come out in, in the process. So you have multiple revenue lines. Those are the, the key features, but it really is um, now in, in, the, in, the day of, in the days of green nickel, it is that residue point which is driving so much interest now towards, uh, towards our company because okay. people, see, people see the benefits of not having to resolve tailings, tailings issues. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay, so um, with regards to that, so um, that's how DNI compares to sort of the, the NPI process. How does it directly compare to, to an HPAL process? Yeah, we're producing the same product. We're both producing um, a, a nickel cobalt mixed hydroxide precipitate, and that's the core product. Uh, HPAL produces some scandium as well, as uh, we, we will expect scandium. The fundamental difference will be that we, we take out the iron, and the iron can form up to 50% or more of the, of the ore body. And um, we, so we extract the iron, which comes out as a hematite, which can be uh, calcined and palletized and, and, and fed into steel mills as a replacement for iron ore. And we remove the aluminium. Uh, and as you may have seen with uh, Queensland Pacific Metals, they are building an HPA plant, which will take our aluminium hydroxide and uh, upgrade that to, to HPA. And we recover the, um, the magnesia. So we produce a magnesium oxide, which we use both within our process to balance or vary the, the pH of the liquor as it moves through. Then we produce a, a, a clean magnesium oxide at the end, which is also a saleable product. So the, the key differences are the range of products we produce and the fact that our tailings, our, res, our residue is 20%, roughly 20% of the ore feed because it is just the silicates that are left. Whereas, as you know, with HPL, your residue, your tailings is between, well, one to up to one and a half times uh, the volume of the ore feed. Because of the calcium carbonate, they have to add two the tailings to neutralize the acid because they throw their acid away um, each time they right this and i imagine that your co2 intensity is considerably lower because you're not having to put as much power into the for instance the pressure acid leach that you do on an hrl yes yeah, so we 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 do need power we need power to 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 uh, for the plant mainly mainly in the form of steam and we're doing, uh, you know, we've got discussions running with various companies here in Indonesia and, and elsewhere with the provision of, of uh, you know, as green power as we can possibly get access to. But the, our process itself doesn't produce any CO2. So there's no, you know, there's no CO2 in the DNI flow sheet uh, produced. There, of course, there are NOx gases, but those NOx gases are all contained and recovered because that is our asset. And that's how we hit the 99% uh, recycling rate. So I think on the on the the, the power consumption HPL versus us, yeah, you know, like I don't have precise figures. So, um, but I don't want to pretend we don't we don't need power. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it would be a nice process if you didn't. Yeah, need power. Yeah, <laughs> I think we take that. <laughs> okay, presumably you've had a fair amount of interest in the in the DNI process from industry partners. You cast your mind back. I know, that, I know this company started a long time ago, back in the early 2000s, 
And when the when the process was proven up at, at, at um, pilot level in uh, in Perth, Western Australia, there was only the stainless steel industry uh, around at that time. And uh, Stephen Grocott, who's the uh, managing director of, of Queensland Pacific Metals, noted last year that this that our process was just waiting for the, the industry to come along, which is exactly exactly true. Our process is really you know, was designed to, to satisfy the needs of, of the of the battery metal industry. And so in the last, well, you know, really the last couple of years, but, but it, you know, intensively in the last 12 months, the interest in our process has, has increased significantly. We, I spent, as you can imagine, as, as the CEO, I spent a lot of time in my early days um, chasing people and uh, trying, to, to, trying to gin up interest. And in the last, uh, certainly in the last year, we're not chasing, we're, people are coming to us and from all over the world. And we have various, you know, various uh, projects running. But the the first project, the, the first signatory of, a, of a, a license agreement with us is Queensland Pacific Metals, and their plant is in the um, feasibility stage at the moment. Okay. If the experiments, if the sort of initial commercial production, the demonstration plants are successful, I mean, what sort of impact do you think this DNI process could could have on the nickel industry? I mean, how how scalable is it? And how rapidly could it be brought into production? Yeah, um, let me let me just correct you on that. Um, the, the process itself doesn't require any more proving. Um, it doesn't require any more piloting or, or trialing. The, the, the process is is proven. You know, Hatch, the engineering firm that's working on on the QPM um, project, have made the statement um, that there are no fatal flaws in in the flow sheet itself. I think the impact that we could have could be could you know could be hugely significant because. It's a scalable process. It's simple chemistry. When I first got involved in this company, um, I was told that this was schoolboy chemistry, and I said, hmm, I'm not sure I want to hear that. <laughs> it sounds like it's too easy to replicate. But we do have the patents in place. You know, we are patent protected on our, on, on our uh, recycling and our, the, the overall process itself. And it, it's the fact that we would be, to my knowledge, um, the, the sole source of, of, of green nickel, that the opportunity that I'm uh, trying to get the companies here in Indonesia to understand is that there are these European and North American markets that are looking for a supply chain which does not involve China for, for strategic and you know, security issues. And that is Indonesia's opportunity to become a supplier of these metals or, or, you know, or the cathodes or the batteries to those, uh, those regions. So how long does it take to, to build one of these plants? What we're looking at, so the, the, the plant in Queensland is being designed as a 16,000 tonnes of nickel output. So it's, I think they're processing about 1.5 million tonnes of uh, dry ore a year. That's fine. And where they started was they, they started originally when they did their PFS 5,000. I think that, uh, and, and it's not, obviously it's not my opinions, talking to the engineers, uh, you know, a 10,000 tonne plant would be very, you know, would be commercially uh, successful, profitable. And a 10,000 tonne plant, what we're looking to do is basically to uh, adopt a, a modularization approach, which is design and engineer a 10,000 tonne plant. And then if you want a 30,000 tonne plant, you can have three lines. Okay. You know, they do this in the IKEF industry, as you know. And then it's, you know, you're not, change, you're not risking any, there's no upscale risk then when you do that. It makes maintenance easier because you can take one line down and, and, and have the others running. And time to build is, the Queensland plant has a 14-month construction schedule for a 16,000-ton plant. So that's the, the, the and that's you know that's from Hatch. So that's the yep. best estimate I've got. 
okay, so you're you're probably talking twelve to fourteen months plus another six to twelve months for qualification if you're going into the EV industry. I'd say that's yes, yeah. So certainly the the twelve to fourteen construction, yes. And what for you are the biggest risks at the current time? This is a very good question because this is the one that I'm I'm continually confronted with because people say, oh, it's new technology, it's not yet proven, it's not yet commercialized. Uh, the not yet proven, we, we challenge and we, we provide support to why it, why it is proven and, you know, and why the flow sheet works. Yes, it's not commercialized, and that, that clearly is, is always a, um, a, a risk. I do wonder in my own mind whether the point isn't made up front so that there will be a negotiation later when it comes to uh, license fees if, they, if, if those particular companies you know, proceed. But it's not as though... If you say HPL is our competitor, it's not as though HPL is without risk. If you look at the you know, the history of HPL plants, you, everybody acknowledges there are significant risks in in um, getting the the design right, getting the the autoclave uh, operating efficiently, and, um, and and getting to to nameplate, which has proven very difficult in the HPL world. Added to that, with HPL, as we've discussed, you've got the tailings issue. For us, I think the benefits uh, outweigh the risks of adopting what, you know, what is a new technology. The technology may be new, the, the, the chemistry is not. So watch this space for what, what could be a, a very exciting source of uh, clean nickel in the future. Oh, I hope so. And, and, and um, you know, we, we do post a lot on, on, on LinkedIn to keep people informed as to you know, where we're going, what's happening. I'll just add, Matt, if you don't mind, that we've, we've also... Because we are interested in the environment, we've been exploring other um, adaptations of the flow sheet. And we have a project running in Spain at the moment where we're working on remediating tailings through an adapted flow sheet and um, extracting, in this case, it's, it's gold, silver, iron and, and some other metals. We've also looked at other, other laterites like, like bauxite and we have looked at the RKEF dust, processing RKEF dust. So there are, the, yeah, there are applications that we that we can also expand upon, but, we, but right now it is a matter of keeping our core focus on developing the uh, the battery metal business. Okay, Chris Gower, Chief Executive of Altilium Group. Thanks very much for your time today. Thanks very much, Matt. It's been a pleasure. So that brings us to the end of our podcast for February. You can get more detail on any of the topics we've discussed in the latest issue of Battery Materials Review, which you can find at www.batterymaterialsreview.com. I'm Matt Fernley, editor of Battery Materials Review, and this has been Recharge. Thanks for listening.